0: What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both of their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. Today, I'm talking to Bram Canstein. Bram, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Happy to be here. Tell us what you're drinking right now, because you seem to be enjoying yourself over there.
1: I told, I just told you I have wine and I have lemonade, so I'm amped up. And- <laughs> wine and lemonade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, podcast. Yeah.
0: Here I am just drinking water like a chump. So you are the creator of Startup Stash, which is the highest upvoted product of all time on Product Hunt. Yes. Tell
1: us about how that got started. What's the story there? Oh man, yeah, the story there is I launched that now five years ago. So it still amazes me that it's it's still the number one one product on on Product Hunt, actually. But the story there, yeah, I was an early user of Product Hunt. I think um, I'm user like 2000 or something. And now I think, I don't even know, a few hundred thousand people, maybe more than a million people have an account on Product Hunt. So I was super, super early. And um, yeah, at one point when I got access, I stalked Ryan for two weeks asking him, you know, can I please be on here too? I think I... I know some cool new products that I can share. And so eventually I started posting, you know, stuff that I found on Product Hunt and, and a lot of them ended up as the number one for that day. And that way, you know, I got in touch with a lot of founders that were thanking me like, Hey, cool that you helped us. We, we got a lot of attention and investors and users and, and stuff like that. So that was really cool to like be, be active on Product Hunt. And at the same time, I was working as an investor here in Amsterdam And because I was on Product Hunt, I was just saving, you know, interesting tools and resources that I found that I thought could be helpful to the startups that I was working with, the startups from the, from the portfolio. And so after some time being active on Product Hunt, I thought, okay, I think I know how to, you know, come up with an idea, build something and then launch it. And yeah, that that was basically where this challenge or, or idea started. So the goal of the challenge was actually to prove to myself that I knew what I was doing. And eventually I combined the list that I had. So I had like six, 700 bookmarks, uh, of interesting resources and tools. I combined that with my like love for old school directory pages. So when I was younger, like 15, 16, I was always on the computer. Yeah. Just browsing on the internet, browsing big stuff like that. Yeah. So I kind of combined that into, uh, what eventually became a curated directory of resources and tools, 400 of them for startups. Yeah, and and I launched it through Product Hunt and other channels. And um, yeah, it really exploded. I think first two days I had um, a lot of visitors and a lot of people sharing it. Uh, so yeah, it went pretty viral. And it's still, yeah, like the, like you said, the number one most upvoted. Yeah, it's got like
0: twenty 20,289 upvotes 20, as of today, which is insane.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. It doesn't make sense. It's still getting upvotes, yeah.
0: Well, it's interesting to think about why it's so popular. And I think part of it is definitely... Just this curation component. If you spend time curating resources and putting together a list of things to help you out and then you decide to make it public for everybody else, they're gonna appreciate that.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that that's the thing. A lot of people have asked me like why did it, why was it so popular? Because basically it's a simple WordPress site that I you know butchered with my minimum coding skills. So I just deleted like all these uh, all these lines of code of stuff that I didn't need. And now the site looks a bit different. So actually I sold it at the end of 2017, it was acquired. So now it looks a bit different. But when it launched, it was just 40 orange square blocks, no visuals, whatever, just the name of a category. But I think that site really represented, but also still represents what I'm really about. That I really think that, you know, if you deliver value with your product, that people don't really care what it looks like or what it was built with. And so, yeah, I think the value was really in the fact that I did... Uh, the curation so I looked at like all these 400 content items I went through them I created uh, like a screenshot and a description and a tagline and all these things so I already went through a lot of work that other people didn't really have to do so yeah I, I still think that curation is really strong so I really focused on focused on the curation part, not as much a review part. So for example, there was a marketing category that just said, here's a suggestion for 10 marketing tools. I didn't say this is the best one or that's the worst one or whatever. Like, hey, from all the marketing tools that are out there, just check out these 10 and there's probably something in there that is valuable to you. That's, I think, basically what uh, the value was that Startup Stash was or is giving to people. And so, yeah, that that project really showed me, yeah, like I said, that it doesn't really matter what the product looks like as long as you deliver the right value, but also launch it to the right people and and talk to those people in the right tone of voice, you know, and and show that you understand their problem and and how you're serving them, that that's a way for your product to become uh, popular and adopted. It's funny how long that checklist gets. It's like oh you just need to do this one thing and also this and also
0: that and yeah, also so this. So
1: yeah, if it's one thing, it's deliver actual value. Well, actually it's three things. So yeah, I was trying to be smart <laughs> there. Now, it's it's delivering value, finding out where your target audience hangs out, like how can you talk to the, or where can you talk to these people? Who are these people? And you know, how do you talk to them? And that's something that I see Still people doing wrong. Like, I, uh, for example, if I just look at myself, like I get cold emails probably every single day. People asking me if I can put them on Product Hunt or, you know, even these cold outreach emails of design agencies in whatever country. Why are you talking to me? There's nothing in that email that says why you are reaching out to me. Yeah. And and I think that especially indie hackers also can learn from that. Like uh, there's so many times where I think, you know, if you if you take one more minute. If you put one more minute into this, this email, you will get a reply. And so, yeah, those are the little nuances, I think, that uh, that make up you know now when something becomes successful or,
0: um, or not. I think starting a business forces you to be a more empathetic person because the entire thing is really just an exercise in repeatedly trying to see things from somebody else's point of view. And if you're just constantly talking about what you want or what you need and you're sending emails that are all about you and not about your recipient, then you're never going to make any sales. You're never going to get anybody to respond. It just doesn't
1: work. Totally. And it's super, super hard. Like I'm not um, trying to make this simple. Like it it is super hard, but that's, you have to be genuine, A, and B, you have to act like nobody knows you and nobody cares about your idea, even though you've been working it for whatever time, no one cares. The person that you reach out to really doesn't care and you identify them and, and you really have to show why you care about them. And what type of value you can bring to them, and that's when I think people will, um, will reply. So you kind of have to like detach your ego from what you're doing and, and try to realize that, you know, nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks of your product. That's you're the only one that does that.
0: Yeah. So we're gonna get into a lot of this business advice strategy stuff because you run a course called No Code MVP where you teach people how to build and validate the startup ideas without having to code. Yeah. And I think. In the last month, you made about four thousand dollars in revenue, according to your graph on Indie Hackers. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's a little bit more uh, because I also have PayPal now, and and some Dutch people they just send nice. me their bank account. But yeah, I, th- I think it's it's between four and five k right now. And so first it was low, then it went up, then a little bit low. If you look at the graph right now, <laughs> so uh, you know it's the start. I'm already happy that I at least have people that that bought it. And, and now I'm really figuring out, you know, how can I grow this further? Like my, it started as a side project, obviously, but my, my goal is to, um, to really turn this into a sustainable source of income. And I'm trying to figure that out as I go, like <laughs> what to do.
0: <laughs> yeah. When did the concept of no code first pop onto your radar?
1: I think it was when CARD, dot D.co, like CARD launched on, on Product Hunt. I think it was four years ago, maybe maybe a bit longer, but definitely four years ago. And the yeah, like a
0: website builder. Yeah, so website builder. Previously build- on the podcast.
1: Yeah. So and the funny thing there was that I actually knew AJ without realizing it. Well, not knew him in person, but I knew his like products. So yeah, like I just mentioned, like I have really minimal uh, coding skills, like HTML, CSS. That's basically it. So um, I'm not not diving into that (laughs) any further, but you know, I was pretty proficient with WordPress. So that's why I also chose like a WordPress directory team for, for startup stash. But in my search for teams, I found, you know, like Pixelerity and there's, there's another like website that AJ also made. So AJ before card, he made like all these WordPress templates. So at one point when I found card and I found AJ, I was like, whoa, damn, I already, you know uh, used products of this guy and what I really saw what he did was translate his like style of creating teams or like his way of working into an actual website builder and up until that point I tried a lot of different website builders like Squarespace and others like Squarespace I never got for example like I have no clue how it works I, I don't know why but when I first used Card, I was like damn this is this is it like I instantly got it I loved it and I started talking with AJ, giving him feedback and stuff like that. So also there, I was a really early user and I'm now just a super big believer in, in card. I love what he's doing with that. But at one point, he started adding integrations. So integrations with uh, Zapier, for example. So you could connect a form on your card website with Zapier uh, or Zapier. I have to say Zapier because it rhymes with happy. <laughs> yeah, <with happier>. exactly. <laughs> Yeah. So once he did that, I saw, oh, damn, if I create a card website with a form where I can basically ask any type of data, even a payment also later. So it integrated with Stripe in the form. If I can send that data to Zapier, I can basically do anything like I can create so many workflows. And that's kind of where, where it dawned on me. If you have a website, if you have an automation tool like Zapier, and if you have a Google Sheet or later also Airtable, you have a workflow that works for probably like 70 plus percent or, or maybe even 80 plus percent of startup ideas, you know, like all, especially like all the landing page stuff, all the service type of products, even in the early stages, a uh, on-demand service type of products. And yeah, I think that was the point where I really dove in. So that's probably like three years ago or something. So I learned Zapier. Still want to become like a Zapier expert. I have to do the do the test. But yeah, that's when I really thought, okay, now there are these tools that you can use to to build a first product. And before I found Card, I was I was working, like I said, for that investor. Um, but I've also worked with dozens of startups on like let's say the first two years of their journey. So what's your idea, who you're building this for? How are you going to market? How how are you going to validate this? What's your MVP? Like all these things. And at one point I was like, okay, if I can combine that methodology, that way of working that I really believe in and also think I'm really like good at to help people with. So basically the consulting part, if I can combine that with the practical part, the actual tools, then I'll have something in the form of a product that's that's pretty unique, like in, in all these years that I've worked with startups and looked at different types of tools, I never saw a product. I consider, of course, a product that combined like these two things, because, you know, you can learn a lot about methodology stuff, but if you don't actually do it, then you, you're you a talker, not a walker. Right. So I, I really wanted to give people a way to, yeah, combine those two things.
0: One of the consistent themes that I've noticed about you is that you're very early to things. So you were one of the very first users of Product Hunt. You were early to this no-code movement yeah. and you in fact started sketching out plans for no-code MVP or course back in 2017 before anyone was really talking about the no-code movement. You even have a <laughs> podcast yeah. that you told me you're working on called Early Ones. Why is it important for indie hackers to be early?
1: Yeah. So I always was like that. I later figured out like what's really the thing that I'm good at or really like and I think one of the things is like you you're mentioning being early to stuff. And I've always been intrigued. So so like I just told you when I was younger, I was always on the computer and I was I was just trying out new stuff. I was one of the earliest users of Napster, for example, in the Netherlands, or, or at least in in like the smallest first batch, for example. Because I was on Dig, I was reading about all these Silicon Valley type people, I figured all of this stuff out like five years later, who I was actually reading about when I was more conscious about what I did, which is funny. <laughs> I've always been intrigued, like why people spend time on a certain idea. So if someone pitches me an idea, then of course I think about it. Like I give them my feedback, whether it's, it's good or bad or whatever. But if I think hmm, this idea sucks, then these people are still working on it. So somewhere in their idea or, or their motivation, is something hidden that I don't see. And I've always been intrigued, like, why does this thing exist? Why are people spending time on this product or this service or this app or whatever? And so that's why I just sign up to a lot of new stuff every week, just to try it out and see what people are working on. And I think if you want to be an entrepreneur or a product builder or a maker, stuff like that just gives you inspiration. Like it gives you what some people call like product sense, you know, like how should a product work? Yeah. So I think it's, it's just part of getting the inspiration. You know, you can read about other people's stories. That's one. But if you try out a lot of products that will also show you, you know, just what are trends and what are people working on and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think I'm just, yeah, I'm just naturally interested in that. It's, it's basically my hobby. When I found product hunt, I was like, this is a tool for my actual hobby, like something that I was already doing. And now I found a platform where I can, You know, share that voice or that was previously just me on Twitter with a thousand followers or something like that. I
0: think the inspiration and motivation parts are so underrated because if you're constantly seeing what new people are launching and building and you then see these people in the comments and you're talking to them and they're talking to you and you realize they're humans just like you and some of them don't even know how to code and maybe you could do the same thing, then suddenly you start thinking about what you can build. And I talk to so many founders who have so much trouble getting started and invariably when you kind of look at their lives, what's going on around them. They're not really immersed in this world of other makers and builders and indie hackers. So besides just seeing what's new, I think it's so helpful to be kind of where the creators and makers are. And that seems to be the case with you.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think so too. And I, But I also think it's really important to be aware of, let's say, where you're looking, right? So I, th- I think we've talked about this before. You know, for example, when I look on indie hackers, I see a lot of interesting discussions. But I also see discussions around things where I'm like, Man, just try this out. You know, like you can get analysis paralysis by just keep talking to people and what do they, what does this person think? What does that person think? You know, like at, at some point you just have to try and only when you try, you figure out that something doesn't work or it does work. And if something doesn't work, you have a problem. And if something does work, you also have a problem, right? Like that's basically what I think trying to be an entrepreneur or an indie hacker is basically all about you want something which is not there which is in essence a problem and then you're trying to figure out how to get there and the result of every step is basically a new problem that you have to solve and as long as you keep talking about it nothing's going to happen so i think you have to be aware at like which phase you're in am i just consuming now am i mm-hmm. sharing something now like just my knowledge or, or my product or whatever and yeah, I think you really have to be aware of that because the danger here is that you'll just keep analyzing and, and consuming all this content without just moving forward. You have to be aware of where you're at and it's really easy to to fall into the trap of going too far either way, yep. where you can't really be objective about, you know, the steps that you're taking or the progress that you're making. And I think that's the essence of trying to become an indie hacker that can, you know, sustainably... Uh, generate income to live off or or being an entrepreneur. If your buy-in is too big at one point, you can't be objective anymore. And that's where things start to go wrong, I think.
0: This is one of the hardest lines to walk as an indie hacker, because I think you're right. There's kind of two modes you can be in. You need to be building and doing things, or you can be reading and consuming information and learning. And I talked to so many people who are slacking in one area and really need to focus on that area to the exclusion of the other. So many people who just read and listen to podcasts all day long, but they haven't sat down to build anything or start anything or come up with an idea. And then yeah. so many people who've been working and hacking every Three day. Years. Yeah, for yeah. years. And it's yeah. like, hey, read a book, <laughs> you know, like come yeah, up for air, or, talk
1: to somebody. Yeah, totally true. I, I think even this week I shared. I anonymized it but I shared like a, a thread that I saw on Indie Hackers where someone said, you know, finally after 2 years my my minimum viable product is live. That was basically the title so I was super intrigued so I clicked on it and basically this guy said, yeah, we we are finally finished. Now I'm thinking about like where can we find the people? How can we distribute this? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, damn, like you're probably not a dumb guy, you're probably super smart. But this is really the, like the wrong approach. You're going to disappoint yourself, which is a totally unnecessary consequence of the steps that you took. Yeah. And that's what I really want to tell people, you know, like not to talk you down, but I really want to show you that eventually you can build anything, especially if you're a coder. But the question is, should you be building everything? And for someone who can code, for example, building something is the most fun part. So I totally get it, you know, when that's the first step you take. But in most cases, that's not the best step. It's rough because so many
0: of the things that you would intuitively think you need to do to be a founder are actually the wrong decision. And the right decision is extremely unintuitive. It's very unintuitive that if you're going to start a company, you shouldn't just jump into building stuff. And I think for you, as somebody who's creating this course and trying to help people learn, that's quite a challenge because you've got to help them, I think on one hand, figure out this startup strategy stuff. Like, How do they actually... Build their company in the right way, so they're more likely to succeed. But also, you're doing a no-code course, and that's part of it. So you're actually teaching people which tools they need to use, yeah. how they can actually build their product as quickly as possible, even if they don't necessarily have the skills. So you're teaching people these two things at once. How do you structure that?
1: Yeah, well, actually, there are three things. So I think the the, the structure of the course is it starts with the mindset. So it's kind of a bit what we already talked about. You know, what's the right mindset when you have an idea? And so the first thing you want to really really believe is no one cares about your idea right your idea is not unique doing nothing and just talking about your idea doesn't get you anywhere so you have to do stuff so i think like 20 percent of the course or 15 20 like just to start is about the right mindset because i think that is really important because if you don't have the right mindset especially when you're working on an idea with more people like two or three people then you really have to create the right baseline before you start or else you cannot have like the objective conversation about what are we actually doing? How should we move forward? Is this good or is this bad? Or, you know, the evidence or the data that you found. And when you're alone on one on one side, it's easier. On one side, it's more difficult because there's no no one who's gonna, you know, go into a discussion with you. But the first part is really about the right mindset. So, and if I have to, you know, drill that down, one is nobody cares about your idea. And the second one is nobody cares about your product. (laughs) So it should really work and deliver the value. That's basically where we start. And then the middle part is really about the methodology. So when I finished my, my study, like eight years ago, I did my final paper on the Lean Startup, which just came out. And I've always been a big believer in that, especially in the fact that you have to make all your steps super small and focused. And I think you already go the wrong way if you just start building your idea because then it's already really big and you can't really go back to small. So if you have the right mindset, you are hopefully able to make it small, like all your steps small and small is not only money and time, but also like your focus. So what I really share in the course is that You know, your big idea is probably the most amazing solution to all the people in the world or all the people in the customer segment that you're targeting, you know, like all makers in the world or all marketeers in the world. But what I'm showing, and I also created like... Uh, my own methodology for that that I actually launched on, uh, on Product Hunt or on Twitter yesterday, which is like a canvas. It's it's like a set of twelve steps that you follow to go from your big idea. So this is my uh, big solution for my big target customer segment uh, for their big problem that they have. And, you know that's where you eventually want to go if you solve everything. For everyone in your customer segment, that's where you eventually want to go. But you cannot start there because no one cares about your idea and no one cares about your product. So you have to dive into that customer segment to figure out from all the marketeers in the world, for example, who are the ones that really have this problem? And then you can segment that any way you want. So marketers working for a startup or for a corporate or whatever, that's totally contextual. So you have to figure that out yourself. But if you segment that customer A customer segment even further down, that's when you go into the right process of eventually creating that into an MVP. So if you say, okay, the most valuable segment from all the marketers in the world is this type of segment, then you're going to dive into that. Okay. Is the problem that I think they have also the actual problem or should I refine it? And then if I tell them about my solution, what's my value proposition and so on and so on. So that's kind of the process that I teach to go from your big idea to something that you can test and learn from so you know how can you learn the most the fastest that's basically what an mvp is about so i really don't see an mvp as the first version of my product or and that could be like the actual the actual first version or like a rudimentary version like the first three features of the 10 features that i want to build so i'm totally not looking at an mvp in in that way and that's why i also think the discussions on indie hackers are super interesting because a lot of people approach it in like the technical way. So that's like part two. So how do you go from your big idea to a structured experiment is how I approach it that you can put out in the world to that segment that you chose of your bigger customer group and validate all the assumptions that you have. So do they actually have the problem? Are they looking for a solution? Like all all these things. And then the third part. So I think that was the biggest part. So like 50% is about that process. And the rest is really about the stack of tools that I chose for this course. And for me, I think those are the tools that are easiest to learn and also cheapest to start with. So, of course, Card is in there, Zapier is in there, Airtable, but also the G Suite, just Gmail, Google Sheets. You know, those are all free to start with. And at the end of the course, I also share, you know, I don't really care, like, how you eventually build your product or which tools you use, or maybe you're even coding, like, 25% of all and no-code MVP members are, are actually developers. You know, it's about what works best for you. And I really want to give people like the practical skills to just start working on, on all their ideas. So if I look at myself, you know, Startup Stash was a successful product, but that was, you know, before Startup Stash, I maybe threw away like 20 ideas that I worked on, some for two weeks and some for six months. And from all these things that I failed from, I I took like one, two or three learnings and, and those eventually, you know, compound into, well, they, they also get into your skill set of figuring out, you know, should I do this thing or that thing, or what does this evidence tell me? Should I proceed with this idea? Like all these things. And so I think the eventual goal of NoCode MVP is to really just help people get started and also help them figure out if they're working on the wrong idea, if nobody's waiting for the idea, that's fine. What you're learning, move on to another idea. Yeah, so that's kind of how the how the course is composed. Yeah.
0: How did you use some of the things that you're teaching in your no-code MVP course to develop no-code MVP itself? Like, what was your mindset? How did you take your big idea down to something small that you could validate? And, and what were the stack of tools that you used?
1: Yeah, totally. At the beginning, I thought, okay, I have to dog food my own methodology, or at least my own you know, process or else it wouldn't be really, you know, um, how do you say, like viable? Right. You know, it doesn't make sense if, if, if I it. wouldn't use my own approach. So basically I put up a landing page with cards, Zapier, Google Sheets, and put it up on beta list. So the landing page told the, the proposition, you know, I thought, okay, it's a mindset process and tools. So these three things, and I wanted to show people the tools, what was my process, but also in the course, there are six like step-by-step building guides for six different type of products. And I knew I I wanted to have those in there. Um, So that was basically like my value proposition and I put it on beta list. I shared it on, I don't know, Reddit and Twitter and stuff like that. And my goal was get 500 subscribers. And if I got 500 subscribers, I would pursue this idea. So eventually when I launched, I had like 2,800 or something. I don't remember when I had the 500, but at one point I was like, okay, now I have to uh, create this thing. And so, yeah, that's when I really started working on like, yeah, like I mentioned before, I think a course is really a product, right? There's a value proposition. There's all these designs. There's the actual layout of the course. There's all this content. So, yeah, I started working on that, especially the layout like table of contents and also doing my research uh <laughs> I was thinking where I wanted to go with this um but yeah so at one point i had these 500 subscribers i was working on on the research and the content and a guy from a network he called me he was running uh, or he is running like the innovation department at a big bank in the Netherlands. And he asked me, like, hey, I see you're sharing stuff about this no-code MVP thing. Uh, do you have a company workshop for this? And but I didn't have anything, but I told him, Yeah, sure. I have I have a company workshop. And then he asked me for the price and I told him it's a two-day workshop and this is the price. (laughs) And he's like, Okay, let's do it. I'm like, oh damn, now I have to really make this thing. So I was already working on it, but that really gave me a boost. Yeah. As in, I got paid to actually develop it. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna do, really going to do my best with the workshop. If they hit it, okay, I can even return the money. You know, I, right. uh, I was at that point. Do you remember how much uh, you quoted him as a price for the two-day workshop? Yeah, it was like 5k. Yeah, it's a pretty healthy amount. Yeah. It's a healthy amount. Yeah. I, before that, I also worked at another big bank in the Netherlands. So I I kind of knew what the prices would be, but I quoted him right. that. So yeah, I got, I basically got paid 5k to validate, well, at least to do something. Part, you're already part, part of my, yeah, yeah. Part of my content. So eventually I ended up with like a keynote presentation of 400 slides that had everything that I wanted. So the mindset, the process, the tools, and getting them to work, to build on a tool. So I, I bought another card account and I put up like these demo websites and, and gave them, gave my login to the team so that they could work with it. There's a free Zapier trial, right? So they could just use all the tools on that day and even two weeks after. So we did the workshop. And then from that workshop, I did another one and another one. So eventually I think I made like 18K or, or almost 20K just doing workshops. And the workshops were my way of validating the content and also the layout. So I could really easily switch up my keynote just by d- dragging around uh, right. the slides. So yeah, my MVP was, it started with the landing page on better list and it ended up as, as like a corporate <laughs> company workshop. Yeah. And from those slides, I eventually created, I chopped them all up and those eventually became like all the videos in the course. Yeah. So each video has like a keynote presentation behind it and, and me talking over that presentation. The consistent
0: theme here is that you're not just blindly making things and then hoping that you'll find customers or an audience later. You're building the audience first. You're finding the customers first. You're building a mailing list and putting up landing pages well before you make your course. And you didn't make a workshop and then go looking for customers for your workshop. You got a request for a workshop and then you made your workshop. So you're always sort of minimizing the risk that you work on something that nobody needs.
1: Yeah, you you can also go with the flow, right? So So like I said, if you want to go somewhere, there's always a problem. So this guy called me and I was like, okay, this is an opportunity, but I don't have anything. Is this the right price? I have no clue. You know, these are all small problems. Talking to someone on the phone, getting an opportunity, small problem. Figuring out the price on the spot, small problem. You know, creating the deck, small problem, or well, big problem. (laughs) Doing the actual workshop, big problem. All these little moments are learnings, I think. And just... You can only learn b- when you do them. And yeah, like I said, I, I really thought if I do really poorly, if they hate me, you know, if they hate the workshop, I'll just refund the money. I don't really care. Like it's already a blessing that he gave me the money, like that he found me, right? So yeah, I always think that's the right approach. And especially because, and this is also one of the things that I really believe, like your idea as a whole is is already filled with all these assumptions, right? So if you ask someone to to pitch You their idea they will say my product is solving this problem for these people in this and this way and I'm going to ask this and this amount of money for example there's already like 4 or 5 really big assumptions like I know who you are as a customer I know who your problem is I know how I'm going to solve it I know how I'm going to sell it to you and all these little assumptions you have to figure them out so as long as they are not true you are still figuring them out And when you get to a point where you know that they're all true, so when you know who to talk to, how to talk to them, where to reach them, like how to, what your value proposition is, like what price to ask and how to actually serve them, which is your product, then you're not a startup or something anymore. Then that's a company. And then, then you go on into focusing on optimizing all those things. And I think if you keep that in mind, then it becomes easier to just stay objective about what you're, uh, doing and that's also i think where you know what i just said i'm I'm also still figuring it out that's just that's not to be cool or that's just the real thing i have no clue i'm just figuring it out as long as i go and i of course you have to get some traction in the beginning if i wouldn't have sold i think now it's like 22k revenue or something total if it was like 3k i i probably you know we probably would have had a, a different conversation but that's the game of you know, putting something out there in the world and figuring out if if you can make a living of it, right? So, yeah.
0: I think one of the things people struggle with the most is just coming up with an idea. When I talk to people who haven't gotten started, more often than anything, it's, well, I don't really have an idea I'm excited about yet, etc. They haven't even gotten to the point of making a bunch of false assumptions that aren't proven, etc. They don't know what to work on. When I look at what you're doing and what so many other successful indie hackers do, your idea isn't particularly elaborate. The idea of teaching people how to start successful companies or how to build things without code. That's not some genius oh my god lightning struck while I was taking a shower kind of idea.
1: No man and I was super insecure about it. I saw White Combinator, startup school, you know whatever this and this forum or you know YouTube channels or whatever but it's it's about figuring out what your angle is on that subject. Does that make sense? You know like my angle is methodology plus the or the, the practitioner part, which, well, I'm convinced that that's a unique, you know, selling point, point. And so that's why I uh, pursued the idea. But just being a course that tells you, you know, this is how you start a startup, just that value proposition wouldn't make much sense anymore, I think.
0: I like how you said you were insecure at first about solving one of these very straightforward problems. Yeah. It's not glitzy and glamorous. But then you realize you could come up with your own unique angle on it. And I think the order of operations there is super important and very unintuitive to first-time founders. This is another one of those unintuitive things where the very first thing you should do, you're picking like what industry you're going to be in, what problem you're solving. You do not need to be unique there. And a lot of times, first-time founders will come up with an idea and they'll look out and they'll say, hey, there's no competition, perfect, I'm so excited, Like no one's doing this. And the biggest risk in the early days is that like, you build something that nobody wants. You solve a problem that no one cares enough to pay money for. And so oftentimes, mm-hmm. when you have competition, that's a good sign. Because that's proof positive that there exist customers yeah. out there who care about this problem and are going to pay money to have it solved. So I think you should come up with a problem that basically you already see people paying lots of money to solve and start there, investigate there for what kind of creative and unique solutions that you can build.
1: Yeah. And and I think you can go at it from different angles. So I, I, for example, one of the people that I really want to reach with the course is people that are, you know, have been working in a certain company for 10 plus years, and they always see the same thing go wrong. Like, that's where their idea comes from. Like, hey, I want to build a product for the companies that look like the company that I'm working now now working for, and I'm going to sell it to them, right? Like, that's where their idea comes from. And, And those are the people that I would love to help. And so they get their idea from a certain type of experience, right? They, they see the same thing going wrong for 10 years, for example. So they don't really look for the problem. They actually experience it. And that's how they validate for themselves. You know, there's there's a problem and it's different types of steps. So let's say you see that there's a problem somewhere. You think, okay, this problem occurs in this and this type of company, How many of these companies are there? What are these companies spending on software or whatever? You know, where are these companies located? And that's kind of where you do that type of research. So it's all about finding little evidence that supports your idea. And at one point, yeah, you have to say, I'm going to go for it or not. And that point, like how much certainty do you need around an idea is totally, well, contextual based upon the idea, but especially on the person, right? So you know, maybe for you, an idea should have 40% certainty and you would totally go for it. Me, I'm a super risk averse person. For me, it should probably be like 70%. But there's yeah, a, also, like 80, 90. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe you're even more. But there's also people that, that just go at it at like 5%, which is amazing to me. Like, I applaud that. I could never do that, but I applaud it. So that's also why it's pretty difficult to teach people this. You know, in some sense, like, uh, when do I know if my idea is successful? And then my answer is always, I don't know, that's up to you. But it's more about the process. Can you objectively say that you did the steps to get to a point where you can make an objective decision? Then you make the decision. And so coming up with ideas, one, could be experiencing the idea in a certain context, Um, You could look at trends, you know, what are people buying now or doing now? Well, like you said, the online learning space is just growing. There's a Gartner report, which I think predicts this at, you know, 10Xing in, I don't know, five years or something like that. It's just going to be huge. So that's also where you can find evidence to support your idea and get to that point of certainty where you can say, okay, well, for example, I don't really know what my product is eventually going to look like. But I know that more people will be at home. This space is growing, so I have to do something in this space. And that's why I'm gonna explore problems within this space, right? And and that's kind of how you can validate in small steps the the direction where you're gonna go. There's one blog post, it's called A Heuristic Way to Finding Startup Ideas or something like that. If you Google a heuristic way startup ideas, then you'll find this article. And it shows you like eight to twelve different types of I want to say mental models or ways of thinking to approach ideas and markets and trends and and stuff like that. So um, maybe that's fun uh, fun to share. And um, I also think another interesting article is called The Idea Maze by uh, Chris Dixon, I think, where he says, you know, if you start with the idea of an online music streaming service, you can still go different routes, right? You can go the Pandora route or the Napster route or the Spotify route, which basically all start with the same idea, online music streaming, but they are all uh, really different types of products. I think you're really painting a, a
0: strong distinction between the problem and the solution. And you know, these companies that you're listing, Pandora and Spotify, iTunes or Napster, like, they're all very different solutions to like, pretty much the same problem. Yeah, And I think what a lot of founders have in their, their heads is this very amorphous thing called a business idea. And it's not really clearly defined what that is. But if you break it down into, okay, there's a problem and there's a solution, then you can think a lot more clearly about it. You can say, who has this problem? How many people have this problem? How important yeah. is this problem to them? How much do they pay to have this problem solved? How frequently do they need this problem solved? Et cetera, et cetera. And then you can think yeah. about your solution. That's no, kind of a distinct, separate thing.
1: No, totally. And I think... I was thinking of, um, I have a friend who's in, um, who's in uh, San Francisco and he just raised 250 K. I'm not saying this is the right way, but it's interesting. He raised 250 K to investigate, not even an idea, but it's to investigate a market. His thesis is like, we should build some sort of back office software service for like these independent dentists clinics Mm. something like that right so what they found is 90 percent of all the dentist clinics they work with excel and manual stuff and you know combined with all the insurance insurance stuff so basically if you go to the dentist and you claim that with your insurance then the insurance sends a paper check to the dental office and then the dental office has to go to the bank well stuff like that so they just identified that really sucks and the only thing they're saying is we're pursuing this market We don't know the product. We just know that the current process sucks. We don't know what we're eventually going to build, but we're going to dive into this market. And of course, you know, the whole Silicon Valley thing, getting funded for for this stuff is crazy. But I thought the approach was really interesting. You know, this market is interesting. That's basically it. And then you really dive into it. So he's doing like 20, 30, 40 interviews with dental clinic owners, asking them, you know, this is my assumption of the process. Can you tell me about the process? Is it true? And that's his time box is I'm going to do the interviews and figure out if from these interviews, I can dig deeper. Is there an opportunity here? And that, that approach I think is the right way, but you know, so also for indie hackers, if you have an idea, what's the smallest thing that you can do to learn the fastest and how do you time box it? You know, if I have to think about what am I going to do for the next two months or four weeks, you know, one month, your answer will probably not be built a thing then, right? If you time box it in a month, well, if you can code, no code is faster, obviously. Okay. But um, my point here is that if you time box it for a month and you really have to, if you really ask yourself the question, how can I determine if I should pursue this idea four weeks from now? And your answer to that question is what you're going to do from tomorrow on the next Four weeks, and that's why you really have to like chop it down. You have to make it small, and making it small doesn't mean it's less valuable. That's, I think, sometimes for some people, what they think you know, their big idea is awesome, it's going to save the world, whatever. And if I make it small, then it won't count anymore. But you have to make it small, or or else you will never end up at the big, the big place, the big picture place. Yeah,
0: couldn't agree more. Andy Hackers, listen to Bram, figure out what's (laughs) the smallest thing that you can do, time box it, figure out how you can get it validated in the next four weeks. And don't be afraid to start small. Bram, thanks so much for coming on the show. I will have to have you on again to see how your course is going and see how, uh, I'm really just curious how this trend plays out with more and more people using no code tools, more people getting into building online businesses. So I will follow up with you on that. But is there anything you'd like to say to the audience uh, just to part ways and also let them know where they can find you online?
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. Um, I'm also really excited to see where this is going to go. I want to thank you again for inviting me. Yeah, people can follow me on Twitter, Bramk, B-R-A-M-K. That's my handle. And of course, check out the course at nocodemvp.com. All right. Thanks, Bram.
0: Thanks. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, you should subscribe to the Indie Hackers Podcast newsletter. Try to send an email with each episode that includes my thoughts, my takeaways, and some exclusive content from each episode. You can find that at ndhackers.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next time.